reading together this morning uh, at part of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7. Well, just to say something about this first, before, first before we read it, uh, it's a chapter that has been, I think, greatly misunderstood by many people for many years. It's a chapter that very often people have taken right out of its context, ignoring chapter 6 and ignoring chapter 8, uh, and failed to see really what Paul is saying, um, and then it's been misinterpreted. So I want us to look at it this morning and see what Paul is actually saying. Uh, in, the, in the first section of chapter 7, which we looked at a few weeks back, we came to verse 6, where it speaks about serving in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. So he's contrasting there a new way of living with an old way, which is living under the law of God. And that could give the impression that God's law is harmful, and in some way God's law is bad news, that we'd be better off without it. And Paul then begins from verse 7 through to the end of the chapter to talk about what the law is and what its effects are. That's what he's talking about. Very often, people have taken this right out of its context and seen it as a description of normal Christian life. No, Paul isn't talking about that. He is talking about the law of God and the effects of God's law on us. So let's read from verse 7 through to 25. Uh, yes, 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law, for I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment which was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, 
but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So as I said, this chapter is actually not about the normal Christian, the struggle that normal Christians have that ends inevitably in failure, as some have understood it. It's not saying that at all. Paul is dealing with this question of, is the law sin? So the chapter is, first of all, about the law and what it does, what it is. And he makes some statements about the law, which we need to bear in mind. For example, in verse 12, the law is actually good. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. There's no problem with God's law. It's not like the law of God is bad news. It is good news. The law is holy, righteous, and good simply because it comes from God, and God is holy, righteous and good. God is holy in all his ways. He is just. He's the God of justice, righteousness, and he is good. So back in the Old Testament in Psalm 19, Psalm 19 and verse 7, the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, and so on. There is no problem with God's law. It is wonderful. Indeed, the psalmist says, it is perfect. So the law is good, and Paul says here in chapter 7 of Romans, the law also was not intended to harm us. God's law was intended to give us life. Verse 10, the the very commandment that was intended to bring life. That was God's intention with his law. It was not bad news, but good news. So again, back in the Old Testament, when the law is being unfolded in Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. It says, keep my decrees and laws... For the man who obeys them will live by them, intended to give life. Keep my decrees and laws, the man who obeys them will live by them. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you might like to also note Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29, and it's something that appears time and again in the book of Deuteronomy, But it says in verse 29, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Verse 32, Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land 
that you will possess. God gave his law so that it might go well with his people, so that they might live and prosper, intended to give life. Paul summarizes it. That was God's intention. That's the purpose of law. It is good. But, Paul says there in Romans chapter 7, this law that was intended to bring life actually had a different effect. It actually, he says, brought death. It's not that God's plan failed. It's not as if God gave something with the intention it would achieve something, and oh, it didn't work. It's not like this was plan A, and that didn't work. Now God scratches his head and thinks, well, what do we do now? No, it's not that his plan failed, because God never fails. God never gets it wrong. God is always right. And it's not that the plan failed, but this perfect law, which should bring life, actually produces death because that was what God intended we should realize. God intended that his holy law should expose something in us. It was always the plan of God that his son should come to die to deal with our sin. He expresses it, Paul expresses it uh, that way in, in Galatians chapter 3. And verse 24, he says, The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That's how this translation puts it. Other translations will put it differently. But Paul is using some very specific language there. What he's actually saying, to use more modern terminology, the law was a childminder to look after us until we went to school. He uses a word there of someone who looks after children. The law was a temporary measure to lead us somewhere. And the law, the the childminder, rather, in in those days, the childminder could do what a childminder must not do today. The childminder could strike a child, discipline a child, punish a child. In fact, they were generally bad news. But they looked after a child until they were old enough to go to school. And Paul is saying the law was like that in a way, looking after us, maybe bringing some discipline, until we come to where we would really learn to bring us to Christ. This law, which is good, it's perfect, but as we come up against something perfect, we see some horrible things about ourselves. And we realize what we can't do, and we realize what we're prone to do, we realize everything wrong about ourselves. We have to face reality that God's good instructions, God's good advice, if you like, provokes a negative reaction, provokes rebellion in us. So in verse 7, he says, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the Lord had not said, don't covet. There's something about us that makes us react to good advice negatively. Let me just give you a test. Let's see how you show up on this one. Some good advice, right? You're about to get some good advice. It's a good idea to have an early night on Saturday. It's a good idea to dial down and have an early night on Saturday so that when we come here on Sunday morning, We're fresh, we're in the peak of health, 
and we're free to worship God. Some good advice. How did you react? Some will think, oh, right, they're telling us what to do on a Saturday night now. Or, you know, when we get good advice, maybe there's even something we are intending to do. But when someone tells us to do it, suddenly we feel differently about it. There's something in us that reacts. Why should I? Who are they to tell me to do that? I know what's best for me. I know what I... A reaction. Now, maybe you pass that test. I could try some other ones, but I won't. The law of God is perfect. But when we come into contact with that perfection, it exposes sin. And it exposes the fact that their sin is a kind of governing principle in my life. And that's what Paul speaks about from verse 21 onwards. He said, I find this law, this principle at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He says, I see a law, a principle at work in the members of my body. Sin, the law of sin, the principle of sin. There is another power at work. So this chapter is about what the law is, and what the law does. But secondly, this chapter is about what sin is and what sin does. And Paul speaks about sin here, not just as isolated actions, but as a power, a power that is at work in us. There's this principle at work in the members of my body, Right back at the start of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis, obviously, the first book in the Bible. And in chapter 4, we read about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Conflict arises between them. They both come to worship God. God accepts one and not the other. And Cain, the one who isn't accepted, is pretty angry about that. And God then says to him in in Genesis chapter 4, And verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. The, The idea there being expressed in that translation is like sin like some not really domesticated pet. There's this animal there. It's crouching there. Another translation just removes one letter from the word crouching and uses the word couching. It's like it's pampered. It's there being looked up, but it desires to have you. It's like a wild animal. If you don't master it, it will master you. And Paul really uses the same kind of idea here that sin is a powerful force at work in every human being. And so when the law of God comes, there is this powerful force that reacts against it. And one of the things that sin does is that it seizes on a perfectly good command and perverts it for evil ends. And so... He says there in um, verse 7, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law, for I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, do not covet. But sin, 
seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Sin seizes the opportunity. When the commandment comes, that's all that sin needs in order to launch an action. And that's the expression there, seizing the opportunity. It's the idea of a launch pad, of a a bridgehead. Some have said a fulcrum, if you understand what that is. If you want to lift a heavy weight, a fulcrum is something, maybe a log of wood, you put a bar on it, the bar goes under the heavy weight, you press on the other end, and that log provides a fulcrum so that actually you can lift something you couldn't normally lift. And the law... Uh, sin, rather, is like a fulcrum, and it, it, it provides all that is needed for evil actions to come into being. It's, 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 it launches evil. So there's this command, don't covet. Don't desire what other people have got, which are things which are not yours. Don't let that get into you. That's the command, very good command. But what Paul is saying is, We wouldn't even think of doing that, perhaps, if the law didn't say, don't do it. And when the law says, don't do it, suddenly it provides a curiosity, a desire. It's one of the problems, isn't it, with today in our generation. We we have a problem with young people, particularly uh, engaging in sexual activity, which God has said is only for within marriage, within the covenant of marriage, but... There's a problem, teenage pregnancies and so on. And so the idea is they've got to be taught as early as possible in school, taught as early as possible. And what happens is that teaching awakens curiosity. It awakens desire. Things that would maybe have been dormant, suddenly the teaching provokes a reaction. And then we have what we see happening in our society today. That's this power of sin and the law, which is good, provides all that's necessary for sin to get active. Desire is awakened. The action is suggested. And so the law, which was intended, designed for life, is distorted and perverted by our sin so that it leads to death. The Verse 10, it actually brought death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And if we sin, we die. And it's the law actually causes that to happen. And sin then overrules all our good intentions. So verse 20, he says, if, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, it's sin living in me. He's spoken of this frustration, hasn't he? Of wanting to do things, unable to do it. And if, if, if I do what I don't want to do, It's no longer me, it's sin. It's this power, this wild animal that's in me that prevents me doing what I want to do. A situation of total frustration. I don't understand what I do, verse 15. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Total frustration, able to make good resolutions, able to express good intentions, but to live it out. Well, that's another story. Frustration and despair. So, 
perfectly good instructions, perfectly good lifestyle advice, frustratingly impossible to receive and impossible to work out. That's what Paul says. And he says, it's sin that does that. It's sin that is in me. Now, again to say, Paul is not here describing a normal Christian life. Paul is not describing his own experience. Although he says, he uses the first person singular, I don't understand what I do. He's illustrating a point. His own position back in the previous chapter, verse 14 of chapter 6, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. That's what he's been expounding in chapter 6. And in chapter 8, he'll go on to develop that theme about the activity of the Holy Spirit in us. No, we're not in that anymore. But we need to understand, law is not bad news. It's sin that's the bad news. It's sin in us. And unless sin is dealt with, as it has been dealt with in Christ, but unless sin is dealt with, then there's this wild animal roaming around this wild animal that is on the loose, and this wild animal called sin that will continually master us. And so Paul is demonstrating the law is not adequate to deal with that. Just rules and advice and instruction will not deal with that. We need something else. But having said that, although this is not the normal Christian life, we can all perhaps identify with what Paul is saying there. We can all know what it's like to to just disappoint ourselves, to set out with good intentions, to maybe make some resolution. At the end of a meeting, there's a, a call for a response, and we respond sincerely, and then the next week, we think, oh, what happened to that? I didn't do what I said I'd do. And we can identify with, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I don't do for what I hate I do. Yeah, we can lapse into that. And we can feel the despair of failing yet again. But that is not the gospel. That is not how it's intended to be. And that is not how it needs to be. But if all we have is the law of God, then there's no escape. And we end up in total despair, the despair that Paul dramatizes there in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And of course, he can't stop himself interjecting, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is an answer, but that's not what he's talking about right now. What he's talking about is how law, instructions, rules, advice, not powerful enough to deal with this principle of sin. So what conclusions do we draw from that? Well, first of all, we see that God's law makes me take sin seriously. Can't be casual about sin. Verse 13 says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. That's the thing. The law exposes sin so that we take it seriously. 
so that it becomes utterly sinful. It's all too easy to be casual, blasé about our faults. No one's perfect, are they? Not as bad as some. As if it's just trivial, little imperfections in our behavior. We're pretty good, really. And, you know, we talk about little white lies or, you know, oh, that's a weakness of mine, we say with a laugh. Or we talk about things we did in the past. Or I remember once what I did, as if somehow time has blotted that out. And we can take it very casually. And then we live in a society that has no understanding of sin. And so we adopt the standards of people around us. What other people regard as normal. What other people regard as funny. What other people regard as a good way to spend your time. It's just the prevailing sense of sin. Well, that's an old-fashioned concept. No, God's law. When we see what God says, what God's law, then it makes us take sin seriously. And unless we take sin seriously, unless I take sin seriously, I will not repent. And that's the start of the whole Christian life. Repent and believe the gospel. How will I seriously repent unless I take sin seriously? Repentance will just become a kind of casual shrug of saying sorry. No, repentance is when we hate a way that we've been living. We turn in disgust from it, saying, I need a savior. So I won't repent, nor will I value the cross. I won't value what Jesus has done. I can sing songs about, he took my sin. He took my sin. He took my sin. If we take it seriously, think what he did. He took all the depravity of my nature. If I take it seriously, I'll admit that. And I'll then see what was laid on him. I'll be amazed for the rest of my life. I'll be worshipping him for the rest of my life, no matter what circumstances I'm in. I'll never cease to be amazed. He, the spotless, pure Son of God, took my sin. If we take it seriously, we value the cross, we value the grace of God, and we pursue holiness. I've said sin is like a wild animal. If we don't master it, it will master us. But actually, we can't master it. It's too powerful for us. No good instructions will master it. But Jesus has dealt with it. When he took my sin, he took all my guilt away and he delivered me from the power of sin. But sin is still around. Just imagine. Imagine there's a wild lion, well, I guess lions are always wild, in your home. You'd be frightened to go indoors. Think of that Aviva ad where the guy goes in the lift, the lift doors are just closing and the lion pounces on him. I mean, he thought he was safe and suddenly there's a lion on him. Maybe some of you don't watch ads, you just fast forward. But anyway, if there there was a lion in your house, you wouldn't go indoors. If the lion was chained in your house, it would be safe to go in. But you'd still be well advised not to go near it. Wouldn't you? 
It's on a chain, but you're not going near it. If we see what sin is, we won't go near it. It's chained. Can't master us. We're in Christ. We're not going to play around. We're not going to go near temptation. We're not going to do things that other people regard as normal because it's a wild lion. It could get us. So you steer clear. Unless we take it seriously, we don't pursue holiness. We don't value the cross. We don't value what Jesus has done. We must take it seriously. And the law causes sin to become utterly sinful. We see what it's about. Now, we need to understand. And we're living in a secular society. We're living in a society that doesn't acknowledge the fact of sin because it doesn't acknowledge the fact of God. Now, a secular society has to develop its own standards, its own ethics. And more particularly, it has to develop its own therapies. And so in a secular society, all the answers to our problems have got to lie within us or in some sort of chemical solution. Because there's no God, there's no salvation, we're in a secular society. And so therapies are developed in order to enable us to deal with our problems. But there's no therapy And there is no good advice and there are no good intentions that can deal with this wild animal called sin. Sin will remain there to frustrate us whatever we come to believe about ourselves. If I'm taught to believe in myself, if I'm taught self-esteem, if I'm taught to think positively and so on, What about this wild animal called sin? None of that good advice, none of those psychotherapies, counseling techniques or whatever are dealing with this wild animal. I'm getting all this good advice, but that still remains. And so actually all that good advice is ultimately cruel because it's deceiving me that all is well. And actually it is not well. There is still sin there. The law of God, which is perfect, doesn't deal with that. So certainly no 21st century psychotherapy is going to deal with it and no chemical is going to deal with it. There is only one solution, but we've got to face the facts. And if we're going to find real answers, we have to face the real facts. And the real facts are there is this thing called sin. The law of God exposes that because when God comes close, people become aware of sin. You read Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he has a vision of the Lord and his reaction is, woe is me, just undone by it. He's seen God and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Was he aware of that previously? Probably not. And he suddenly wears is aware, I live among people of unclean lips. Was he aware of that before? Possibly not. But when he sees God, just finish reading a book about the Welsh revival in 1859-1860. The book was compiled in 1860. So first-hand accounts of what God was doing and time and again stories of people who were hostile to God, never went anywhere near a church, 
and suddenly God comes close and people just bewailing their sin, not aware of it previously. But now God comes close and they face the facts. They've sinned. Self-help is no solution. We need a savior and that is what Paul is speaking about here or that is who Paul is speaking about here. And so when he arrives at verse 25, verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've got to face the facts to find a real solution and the real solution that deals with the real problem is the Lord Jesus Christ who took our guilt, delivered us from the dominion of sin and gives us his spirit so that we're not living in frustration and we're certainly not living in compromise. We are fleeing that wild animal because it's still around. But we're doing it by faith in the Son of God, in the power of the Spirit, not by law, not trying to make good intentions which fail but by faith in the Son of God, we're living free. But we're not messing around. We're not going near that line. It might be chained, but we're not going to play around. We're living for God. And that's what Jesus has enabled us to do. So in this chapter, Paul is not speaking about normal Christian experience. This is a a, a note that he adds in to take us from what he had said to where he's going. But what he wants us to see here is that God's law is perfect. The law of God is not a problem, but though the law of God is perfect, it doesn't make me perfect. It can't change me. And because the law of God cannot change us, so I'll pause for a bit. So the law of God is perfect, but it doesn't make us perfect. And therefore, as Christians, and most in this room are, as Christians, we don't slip back into that way of thinking. As if legalism, law, good intentions, good resolves, good resolutions, as if any of that stuff is going to actually improve us. It doesn't. It doesn't make us perfect. Salvation is through Christ alone and it's by faith in the Son of God. That's the only way we can change and that is the way that is offered to us. But if sin isn't mastered, it does master us and it's got to be dealt with through the gospel. So many Christians don't take sin seriously. They, they believe in what Jesus has done and they'll sincerely worship him, but nonetheless, they play around too near that wild animal. There are students who are in a student environment where there's all kinds of things going on just begin to find standards get eroded. What is normal anymore? As so they go along with some of the stuff that goes on, playing near that wild animal, as if, It doesn't matter, perhaps, about sexual purity. It doesn't matter about getting drunk. It doesn't matter 
don't go near that wild animal. There's, but laws won't make you different. It's by faith in the Son of God, by faith in his power, being filled with his Spirit, that we are able to do what no good instructions would ever enable us to do, to deal with sin so we're not slaves of sin. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're enjoying him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We're not called to a life of frustration. We're not called to a life of cynicism. We're called to a life of faith in the Son of God, who is our Savior and delivers us from sin. Let's pray.